You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 178. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today I am in New Orleans, or actually I'm traveling to New Orleans today at the end of the evening. I'm going to be there for the weekend with friends, so no meetups are actually planned for this leg of the journey. And then I am headed to New York for a few days in the following week before my very big next adventure that's coming up, and I'll share more about that next week. So today's episode is a follow-up to a question that was asked on the Q&A episode on Tuesday, which was all about what I learned from Eckhart Tolle in his retreat in Costa Rica a few weeks ago. So as you guys know, if you've been listening to the show in the last few weeks, I was there for a week at a deepening presence retreat with Eckhart Tolle and his partner, Kim Eng. I did not know before going to Costa Rica that Eckhart has a partner in life and in teaching in the form of Kim Eng, but it was wonderful to also learn about her work and presence through movement in addition to Eckhart's teachings. So I'm going to share with you guys what I learned from this experience. I was so excited to be able to experience this, not only for myself, because this was truly a dream come true, but also because I knew I was going to be able to take this and bring it to you here on the show. And actually, I also want to give a little shout out to Susan, who's listening to the show right now. She also was at the retreat and said hi to me while I was there. So thank you, Susan, for that as well. So if you guys are wondering why I picked Eckhart Tolle in this retreat in the first place, it's because when I thought earlier this year about the teachers in the world that are alive today that I would like to learn from before they pass away, like Wayne Dyer and Stephen Covey did, before I got to meet or learn from them in person in any way, Eckhart was definitely at the top of that list. So when someone anonymous, I can't even remember, she wasn't anonymous at the time, I just can't remember her name, someone that listens to the show sent me an email and forwarded me this information about Costa Rica and the retreat, and she said, so you're going to this, right? Or something like that in the email. And I don't know, it was kind of like a sign from the heavens, if you will, and I really took it as an opportunity that I said yes to. And this is far before I was planning on selling the house or moving or never living anywhere. So this was kind of a big step for me at the time and I'm so glad that I took it. So now I'm going to share 10 of the takeaways that I took notes on fast and furiously just for you, and I hope that these little nuggets of wisdom resonate with you. And for those who are new to Eckhart Tolle, I'll quickly say he is best known for his book, The Power of Now, and his other book, A New Earth. He has additional titles in addition to those two, but by far and wide, The Power of Now is probably the most famous book that he's ever written and is one of the I don't even know if I would say one of, he is probably one of the most informational, transformational teachings that I have used to understand my life in a better way. He actually introduced me to the ego as I use it on the show in the first place through the power of now and so much more. So if you haven't dove into his work before, please consider doing so. I have heard that his audible version of The Power of Now is truly incredible, and I actually just downloaded it today. In the past, I've just read his books, and if you are going to read the books, my recommendation is to start with The Power of Now because it's very practical and very easy for you to start working into your daily life, and then go on to A New Earth. When I read the books in the first place, I was reading along with the Oprah episodes that she was doing about A New 
earth and I didn't even know really about the power of now. And I have to say that a new earth was a little over my head at the time many years ago before reading the power of now. But once I read the power of now and then revisited a new earth, it all made sense. So that would be my recommendation if you're going to dive into his work in a more active way after this episode. But now let's move on to the takeaways. So Takeaway number one, and this is actually coming from Kim's teachings, not Eckhart's, was the idea that we are like a bamboo flute. That's right, we're like a bamboo flute. So what she said is basically that when we're clear and free of ego resistance, we're like a bamboo flute that the light, universe, source, intuition, whatever word you wanna call it, can work through us, can blow the wind through us so that we are just simply channels for that pure light, that energy that's really positive and effortless, that real, real deep flow. When we feel that and we're kind of out of body and maybe you've had that experience in the past where you're just really fully engaged in something and your ego is not even present and later someone remarks to you about how amazing that experience was to experience you in that way, that's very likely what this idea of the bamboo flute is. When your flute is clear, the wind can move through you easily and make beautiful music. However, when we have the ego in there and the thoughts are blocking the wind from flowing through, it's kind of like having a bunch of kidney beans clogging up the flute so that the wind and the music can knock it out. When the flute is clogged, Kim emphasizes movement, making sure that we use our bodies and take movement to make sure that those negative thoughts or emotions do not get trapped in our body as pain or illness. So she, in her exercises with us in the retreat, focused on stretching, yoga, and dancing as ways to shake out the negative energy. And this is a fascinating thing that I remember Eckhart talking about once in a YouTube video I saw. And he might have mentioned it in a book as well. I'm not sure if he mentioned it in either of the books. But he talks about mallard ducks and how when mallard ducks go and they fight each other in the water, they'll have the fight. And then after they're done fighting, they will flap their wings and shake off their water as they swim away. So they shake it off, literally like the Taylor Swift song, shaking it off. And as they do that, they remove the physical, emotional energy that was created by whatever thoughts were creating the fight in the first place. So the stretching, yoga, and dancing are Kim's suggestions for helping us to keep that flute clear and make sure that that negative thought energy doesn't create negative experiences like pain in the body. Next up, number two takeaway that I learned was the positive and negative aspects of Christianity and Buddhism. So the rest of the takeaways are all going to be from Eckhart here on out. He spoke a lot about Buddhism and Christianity in their, I think he would probably say, authentic forms that may not be the ways that you have thought about them before. So if you're very jaded or very have strong opinions on Christianity, I will definitely say he is approaching Christianity from a very, very similar place to Buddhism. And he talked a lot about how scriptures and how things have gotten shifted over the years to kind of transform the teachings from a much more similar to Buddhist place to a different place entirely. And so he was really drawing on a lot of the parallels between the two teachings so that we could use them. And he talked about the positives and negatives of each of the ideologies or the teachings, if you will, and why neither of them are necessarily all encompassing, but just to talk about the positives and negatives. And here's what he shared. 
In Buddhism, it focuses on the negative space, like the concepts of no death. And the good thing about Buddhism in that way is that there's nothing really to believe in, so you can't really worship it as its own entity. It's really helping you to focus on what's not there, so there's nothing really to latch onto in an ego sense. However, the negatives of Buddhism were that it's not very inspiring because there isn't anything to believe in. So it's kind of that positive is also the negative. On the Christianity side, on the flip side, he's mentioned that that is kind of the flip side of the Buddhas. So they're both speaking to the same source, but Christianity takes a focus on the presence of something like eternal heaven or eternal life. And the positives of that approach, instead of no death being eternal life, that is inspiring and it is something to believe in. So it's something that is positive, so it's something to lean towards. However, the negative there is that it does give us something to believe in, so we can end up worshiping the ideas of it rather than the source of where it came from and end up fighting over it or bickering with each other, which can tend to, if you look over the course of history happen with Christianity. So that is his take on that. I'm not going to go much deeper into it because I don't think I could do it justice the way he had. However, those were big bullet points, if you will, that I found pretty interesting to think about the positives and negatives, the benefits and drawbacks of points of views on what enlightenment consciousness presence truly is. Now for number three, what is the biggest addiction in the world? I want you guys to think about that for a second. What do you think the biggest addiction in the world is? Eckhart says it's thinking. He says our world is full of repetitive, superfluous, and often negative thinking. In fact, how often are you hearing people say, I can't do blank or so-and-so now. I have too much on my plate. Maybe you've even written that in an email today. What he said is that it really means I have too much in my head. And what's fascinating is someone asked Eckhart, because we did a lot of Q&A throughout the week, we had someone come up to the stage and ask Eckhart what he thought his greatest accomplishment was. Okay, this guy has been, you know, he's besties with Oprah. He's done a lot of amazing things around the world. And he's, I don't even know what else I could even say about it. I mean, he's a best-selling author, all of those things. He said his greatest achievement is his ability to stop thinking, which of course is a wonderful antidote, if you will, to this biggest addiction he feels we have in the world, which is so interesting to think about. How addicted are we to thinking? And how often are we not even thinking that that addiction is an addiction to have in the first place? food for thought. Now moving on to what we can do instead. That's all about presence. And number four is presence in stillness moves towards presence in motion. So this is really interesting because I think our society right now overall is very much awakening in a greater and greater, bigger and bigger way, more mainstream, if you will, to meditation on a cushion. We're getting the awareness that meditation on a cushion or clearing our thoughts in a mindful, deliberate way throughout our day for 5, 10, 15 minutes or a few hours, whatever you want to do at a time can be really helpful. And that's true. However, he believes that really that is only practice for bringing that presence into action. So when it comes to the Buddha, what's really interesting is Kim mentioned that the final image, if you think of the Buddha, you usually think of the statues you've seen of him sitting with different hand postures. Well, there's actually many different forms of the Buddha that are kind of sequential. And apparently the final Buddha, which is actually the Buddha of the future, is sitting in a chair 
Western style. So he's not sitting cross-legged on the ground. He's sitting in a regular chair. And this is to emulate or this is to symbolize to us that we're going to bring that presence we've done on the cushion into our daily actions. So that is something that Eckhart really focused on in our retreat. In fact, we didn't actually meditate, quote unquote, in the traditional sense during the entire retreat. What we would do at the start of each of the lecture sections that happened and at the end of them is we would get still in our chairs, which kind of looks like meditation in some ways, but it was just about being purely present for a few moments while he rang a bell. But then he mentioned an idea that comes into number five. So let's move on to that one. So In addition to this idea of presence in action, he talked about what I'm gonna call fartlicks of presence. So have you guys ever heard of a fartlick? I'm guessing that the runners out there who are listening to this know what a fartlick is. It is, I think, a Scandinavian word for like speed play, I think is actually what that direct translation means. And I used to do this in high school for my running in cross country and track. So this was what he's basically suggesting that we do. I'll just share the running version and then we'll get into the present. So when it comes to running a fart, like what you do is you go out for a run and you pick a spot. As you're running, you look at the mailbox down the street and you run all the way down to that mailbox and sprint. And then you slow down after you hit the mailbox to the next landmarker that you pick. Maybe it's a tree or a bush or a car and you slow down to a regular pace. And then once you hit that next point that you've arbitrarily picked as you go, then you sprint and speed ahead. So you do these different speed plays as you go, picking arbitrary points along the way. Well, basically Eckhart suggested doing the same thing with thought and presence. So this idea is that you would choose different landmarks and try to go between each one, alternating between thinking and not thinking, being purely present and not focusing on it so much. This kind of also goes to what he calls the Zen art of hurrying slowly. So how can we have our presence even as we're taking action, even if we're behind, even if we have to run to catch a train, how can we be purely present in that so we're not trapped in the mind thinking as we go into the repetitive superfluous thinking that he talks about earlier? In addition, he also focused in terms of being purely present in action about doing a loving kindness meditation, which of course you guys probably know by now, I love the loving kindness meditation to do on a cushion. It came to me and became a really big part of my meditation practice in stillness through the Scottish retreat that I did in the summer. And he brings that to actually interacting with real people. So he had us practice a few times throughout the week, looking into a partner or someone that was sitting next to ours eyes and getting really still and having no thought, just simply observing them with pure presence. It was a pretty intense and very interesting experience. If you have anyone that you could feel comfortable trying this with, it might be worth giving a shot. He says that he even mentions that when you are really present with someone and just stare at their eyes in that way, it's fascinating because they often have an ability or they tend to end up liking you a lot and they don't even realize why. But he says it's because you're actually seeing them for who they truly are without your story. And most people aren't actually looking looked at in that way. And so even if they don't totally understand what's going on, and this isn't about glaring at them, by the way, this isn't about that. He calls it gazing, not glaring, not staring. It's a simple, soft gaze. That is something that I I just really want to keep doing. And I've been more and more aware of how to do it in small moments. So I'm not freaking anybody out as I'm doing it. But you can also practice it with someone if they know what you're doing as well. 
Now for number six, this is one of my favorite ones, and I think this is so interesting. So you guys are probably wondering about fear. So number six is all about psychological fear. So is fear necessary, right? We hear a lot about that, especially when we talk about the ego. So what he says is that number one, There's like two types of fear. So number one is that animals don't have fear. I know we often say that, you know, even animals are afraid if they have something like a threat come out to them in the wild. Eckhart says it's different. He says that animals don't have fear. They go on high alert when they perceive a threat in the present moment. So that, he says, is high alert and it's different than fear. And then what he does say that we have, and when we're talking about fear, most often we're talking about, as humans, psychological fear. So what is psychological fear? It is the mind actively anticipating things that could go wrong. So let's look at that, actively anticipating things that could go wrong. So the mind in the human is thinking about the future and worrying about things that could go wrong that have not actually happened. This is very different than the high alert of an animal that is only feeling high alert when they actually in real life, in the present moment, perceive a threat. So psychological fear is about the future and something going badly. So for example, he says, you know, we often say, well, we need fear so that we don't burn ourselves on the stove. If we didn't have that fear, we would burn ourselves. He says that's totally false. He says we don't need fear to do that. It's simply common sense. If someone tells us that we don't need to fear it, we just need to know not to do it. So basically common sense equals direction Fear, on the other hand, when we're actively anticipating things that could, quote unquote, go wrong, that is suffering. So psychological fear is not necessary and is not real because it's thinking about future things that may go wrong that are not in the real part of our lives. And even if something was to be taken action upon, it will be common sense. It wouldn't have to have fear associated with it. And even if something scary did happen to us, like let's say someone pulls out a gun and we're, you know, we could go on that high alert without necessarily having to have this idea of anticipatory fear along with it, which sounds crazy. And I know that that might be really hard for us to really wrap our heads around. However, I just did an interview with Byron Katie, who I'm so excited to share with you in the next few weeks. And today she even mentioned that she had someone draw a gun upon her in the past a few years ago. And she is like Eckhart, one of the most enlightened beings I believe on the planet right now. And she didn't have fear when it happened. So I do know that it's possible (laughs) even in that case to get there. Am I there now? No. Are we necessarily ever going to get there? Time will tell. I can't really say what will happen in our future, but at least we know it's possible. And in the much more mundane fears that our psychological fear is coming up for us every day, we're not really actually always getting a gun pulled on us. So even in that case, psychological fear is often unnecessary in the much more mundane stuff that we're facing every day. Now for number seven, this is about who chooses to be present, ego or intuition? Isn't this an interesting question? So who is choosing, if we wanna be present right now, is my ego choosing to be present or is my intuition choosing to be present? Eckhart says it's neither. You simply open up to presence. He says presence is always there. You aren't choosing it. Presence wants to enter through you. So basically getting still allows that to happen. So it's not necessarily ego or intuition. I would actually say that presence is intuition and that you're always 
there. So intuition's always there. You simply open up to intuition. You aren't choosing it. It wants to enter through you. Getting still does allow that to happen. Or in my case, as I suggest, asking questions from the ego to the intuition allows that to happen too. But either way, that is what he says, is that you simply open up to it. It's not about using the ego or not using the ego. Now, number eight is about loving yourself versus being yourself. This is so fascinating. So he talks about loving ourselves as having a self-image of who you are. And this is so interesting because Louise Hay, who I've been studying this summer, does focus on loving yourself. And even Eckhart said that having positive thoughts about yourself is more useful than having negative thoughts about yourself. And there's also a difference. So yes, positive is more useful than negative and being yourself, which means having no self-image of who, quote unquote, I am, is wonderful. He says that, for example, when he is not teaching, he's not a teacher. So if he's on stage and he's teaching, then he's, quote unquote, a spiritual teacher. When he's not on stage and he's not teaching, he does not define himself as a teacher. So there's no identity there with what he does, quote unquote, for a career, which I know from listening and working with so many of you guys, we have all possibly from time to time, had issues with our self-worth and work issues. And I had suggested in my recent episode about talking and using words very deliberately to say that I have a podcast versus I am a podcaster, or I teach instead of I am a teacher, I practice law instead of I am a lawyer. He kind of takes it a step further and he says that you're only actually even having that action when it's happening in the present moment. When it's not happening, it no longer applies, which might make you guys kind of wonder, and I know I've gotten a lot of questions on live coaching stuff about self-esteem. And he mentions that the Dalai Lama apparently had to be told what self-esteem was. Someone asked him about self-esteem and some interpreter had to actually sit there and try to explain what the concept of self-esteem meant because apparently the Dalai Lama didn't have any concept for that from his previous training or thought process, which is so interesting, isn't it? From the Western point of view, self-esteem is seen as such a positive thing that we want to build up. But that goes and falls into the loving yourself category versus being yourself. So what he says is that self-esteem is often comparative and connected to the ego. Because of that, it always has a sense of unease because someone is always better off or worse off than us at a variety of ways that we're identifying ourselves and our self-esteem. So then people asked, could there be healthy self-esteem? And his response was that the only healthy self-esteem is derived from a deeper place than the ego, which would be the presence of consciousness. And when you're in the presence of consciousness, if there's you know healthy self-esteem there, there's no longer any need to compare because that's who you are in essence is consciousness. So there's no narrative to justify yourself. If you're purely present and you're purely conscious, there's no identity wrapped up with that. There's nothing really to be comparing yourself to because you're purely in a place that is so connected to everyone else that there's no need to see separation or distance. And I know that is crazy for us as we've been mostly living in an egoic society that loves to compare others. But that was his thought on that is that being yourself is actually being purely present 
purely conscious and all of the identity elements of us fall away. Does that mean we're still who we are? Yes. I don't think that means we're all blobs that are totally the same, but I think that when we're not attached to what we're thinking about ourselves, our true light or that bamboo flute, as I mentioned earlier, is able to play its music without the interruption of the ego identifying or attaching itself to that music. Because then I think as it does, it kind of puts those kidney beans that she mentions that can clog the flute, that self-identity can create that block for the wind itself to come out. So as we let go of those beans and we stop identifying with them, then the wind can come through and we're not attached to what our vessel is or looks like or has or has not because it's no longer as important as the presence and consciousness within. Okay, now we're moving on to number nine. Hopefully you guys are still hanging in there with me. This might be a lot to take in if you are new to this type of work and going to start with the power of now, by the way, is just a great place to get started on this work. And then maybe returning back to these subjects after you've listened or read those books might be a way to do it. I know we've been talking a lot lately about parents, whether we have parents we're dealing with or whether we are parents with children. So here are his takeaways that he shared from parents that were asking questions about handling children or for people that were struggling with their parents' expectations of them. So here were his thoughts. He said that when we follow our parents' expectations for us, and often we can think about that with our family, how we're raising them, or how we are focusing on our career, What he says is that when we follow their expectations at the consequence of our own intuition, if you will, it spares them suffering, but puts the suffering upon ourselves. I'm going to say that again. So when we follow our parents' expectations against our own internal knowing, our own consciousness, we are sparing our parents any suffering. We're just putting that suffering upon ourselves. And he also mentioned later in the retreat that we do love our parents so much that often we choose to willingly take on their fear as our own. When we do what they want us to do, we are willingly taking on their fear as our own instead of finding our own internal alignment. So this, of course, obviously applies to other people, not just our parents, too. Whenever we're following other people's expectations, any external expectations, we are sparing them of the suffering and putting the suffering on ourselves, which even if you think about it really makes you wonder. Let's say that you're not even doing it for your parents. You're just doing it for this general idea of what society wants for you. And you're sparing them, whoever they are, that's a super vague term to begin with, and putting the suffering on ourselves for this vague entity that doesn't actually have any feelings whatsoever. It's a really interesting insight. And he says that, of course... And he mentions that this, in a long, enduring sense, could lead to illness. If we keep avoiding our internal alignment and trying to spare these other people in our lives suffering, our own suffering could create that bodily reaction with all of those negative emotions in time. He also says that following your internal alignment, when you do that, it does force the parents, or anyone else in our case, to face their own internal suffering. If they can't handle our choice, then we're letting them or allowing them to face their own internal suffering, but we're no longer putting their suffering on our plate. So obviously you want to keep this in mind if you are a parent as well, to make sure that you are not making your children suffer for your own fears, for the sake of your own fears. And of course, we never think that what we're fearing is actually going to be harmful for the other people in our lives. We think that it's actually going to help them. 
But that is just because we have not recognized that they have an internal knowing that knows what's right for them. And we want to help and enable them to tap into that for themselves, even with our children. Of course, as we have the little kids, it doesn't mean that they are going to be able to do everything on their own. But as they grow up from a very young age, could we not help empower them to have that connection from the beginning and then help them to help communicate that to us so we can also make sure we're not doing more harm than good? Something to think about here, of course. And then he had for anyone that has been following their parents' advice or expectations, here were his kind of three steps. One, see what your possibilities are now, given the fact that you're a lawyer and they wanted you to go into law. Maybe you decide to change what you practice law in, or maybe you decide that you can surrender, step two, and do it consciously now. So now you can do it deliberately without the suffering. You can drop that and get into pure presence. Or if you can't, you could simply leave that choice, leave that career, because the past no longer matters. Boom. The past no longer matters. He was pretty matter of fact about that one. You know, I think that we get so trapped in, oh, I spent so much money or so much time on X, Y, or Z. He was pretty nonchalant about it. He was like, the past no longer matters. Move on if you can't do it consciously where you are right now. Something to think about. And of course, your intuition will be your guide there about when to make the next move for you. And now for number 10, this is so interesting. And let's see if you guys, it's kind of esoteric here. So let's get into it. Is the ego useful? So first, we'll have to talk about what the ego is. He says the ego is a complete identification with our form identity. So what that means is that we're deriving a sense of self exclusively from our form of body and mind. So that's all of the stuff that we normally think about when we think about self-esteem. All of our personality traits that aren't the pure presence ones, the ones we add to ourselves, like I have this status, this look, this age, this wealth, or whatever those types of things are. That's what the ego is completely identified with. So is that useful or not? Eckhart believes it was necessary, the ego is necessary or was necessary for human consciousness. So he kind of painted this whole picture about basically, if you think about the evolution of humans, so I'm going to try to go from the beginning to where the future holds. So in the beginning, we had no difference between the animals that, you know, like the gorillas or any other animals out there. So we had no thoughts the way that we do now. So there was just kind of like the reaction to the present moment and pure presence. Then thoughts started happening. And at first he said, this is so fascinating. He mentioned people thought that gods were talking to them at first. That's how they interpreted thought initially, as we know thought to be today or ego. Eventually, consciousness got pulled into the mind instead of into purely being. So instead of just being that reaction, high alert, no psychological fear version of us that we used to be more like the animals, as these thoughts started to happen and As we stopped seeing them as gods talking to us, we started getting pulled into the mind and all of those thoughts we chose to believe are ourselves. So now, that's kind of where we've been for a long time, but now we're getting to the point where we can go through the ego, through this form identification, and lose that. Go back to the old state of egolessness in order to return back and deepen even deeper into now. So what that means is that we're getting to a point where we have the conscious realization of being. So what happens is as we have the ego now, because we've kind of been living with that in our lifetime. So we have the ego. Most of us are just waking up to the fact that, oh my gosh, those thoughts I'm hearing 24-7 are not necessarily true. I don't necessarily have to act on them. I don't have to be driven by them. 
all that stuff we've been talking about on the show for the last two or three years. So once we get to that point, then we start to recognize we don't have to have the thoughts. We don't attach to the thoughts. Those thoughts don't control us. And eventually that voice will die slowly off into the distance, if you will. Or even when it does pipe up, we're not paying much attention to it at all. Once we have that space, because we're not 24-7 thinking about our thinking addiction, then the conscious realization of being and pure presence opens up to us. And as we do that, we can then use thought without it using us. So that was what he says is eventually, it's not like we revert back to, we like devolve as humans, we're evolving. We are going through it and we're going to be what I would call trans thought. So we have traversed the thought that is everything all the time to a point where we can choose to have it when we want to and choose not to have it when we don't. And like I mentioned, that's Eckhart's favorite thing that his biggest accomplishment, I should say, I wouldn't say it's his favorite thing, but his biggest accomplishment is his ability to stop thinking whenever he wants, which means he then has the choice to think when he wants. And I'll be honest, I don't have that choice right now. I'm very aware of the ego myself, and you probably are too, but the ability to just turn it off the way he has is not something that I've yet tapped into on a consistent basis at all. So that is his thought on whether or not the ego is useful. It has been useful for us to recognize our consciousness from a conscious place. That's a lot of words. But basically, before we had no idea we were conscious, we were just doing it just like the animals. But now we're getting to a point where we can be aware of it and still use thought when it is, in fact, useful. And I have number 11 for you. It's actually kind of a bonus takeaway. People ask, and this is such a great question for someone like Eckhart, what is enlightenment? So they asked him this, and he said, you don't actually achieve enlightenment. It's not like some place that you're going to get to in the future. You simply tap into presence at any moment. Because there is no future, that's what the power of now is all about, that we only have this moment. That's all there actually is. So either you're enlightened right now or not. That's it. Either right now you're purely in your presence and you're not having those thoughts that the ego is, you know, kind of controlling you with. You're not in the slumber-like state, drowning out with thoughts. That means you're enlightened in that moment. Does that mean in the next moment when a thought comes up that you're enlightened? Not necessarily. It's a moment-to-moment thing. And that's what I love about the sparkle water. If you guys have heard me talk about that in the past is I always love looking at the light sparkle and reflect on the water because I see the sun's reflections as our choice to reflect the light above or the depths below, the intuition or the ego. And when we are reflecting the light above, we're in that enlightened state. That's what I love about it. Enlightened, get it? Bright sparkle water, that light That is what we are when we are that bamboo flute. That's what we are when we're in that pure presence. And what basically I would say, I know he wouldn't necessarily say this, this is what I'm going to put on this, is that people like Byron Katie and Eckhart, I just believe, have learned how to maintain their light on a moment to moment to moment to moment basis that's so consistently shining that we see them as enlightened the way that our egos would look at the term enlightenment. But they, when you actually ask them, say there's no way for them to know because it's always every moment's pretty much happening in the past when we think about it or actually analyze it. So they're either in that pure place of presence in that moment or not. In addition, he had this fascinating take on the concept of human beings. So if you deconstruct the term human and beings, if you break it up, he had a very fascinating take on enlightenment here too. So human 
the first part of human beings, is all about our form, that we're physically here on this planet, in this body, right now, at this moment. And being, human beings, the being part is our essence, that pure presence, that pure light, that pure connection to intuition. So if you look at human being being form plus essence or form plus presence, what it really means is that here on earth as humans, we are taking action, we're activity on the level of form as people being on this planet, walking around, doing things, interacting with other people, and our beingness, our presence is there at the same time. And that is what enlightenment is. When we take action with pure presence, that is enlightenment. Human beings, when we are in form and we're in essence at the same time. So there you guys have it. That is what he shared. He also had another takeaway that is my very favorite, most transformational one, and I want to devote an entire episode to it. So I'll share that with you guys in the weeks to come, but just know that these are the 10 other, or 11 other, I should say, things that he shared that I hope will benefit you in some way. And again, feel free to re-listen to this if it's useful, or just start with his books, or even revisit the books if you've read them years ago. I know that I have found that like the seven habits of highly effective people, The Power of Now is one of those books that I can go back to again and again and get new and deeper understandings as my own understandings and connection to presence shift and deepen over time. So if you haven't listened in a while or read in a while, it may be worth going back and re-listening. And of course, there are tons of content on YouTube of Eckhart speaking. You can also follow his Eckhart Tolle Now program, which is a subscription program to get all of his teachings. I believe they'll also have the Costa Rica teachings in their entirety up there too. Actually not that expensive at all. It's really pretty affordable. So you can look into that as well if you're interested. But overall, I can just say, I hope that this has benefited you in some ways as much as it has myself. And I hope to share more, like I said, of that number one takeaway in the weeks to come. So there you guys have it. If you'd like to send me a message on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, maybe you can let me know which of these takeaways hit home the most for you. Or if you want me to go deeper into any of these subjects I just shared, please let me know there. I'm at Jess C as in Costa Rica Lively. For show notes for today's episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Eckhart Tolle Retreat. And before I share where I'm going next week, I'd like to take a moment to talk about today's sponsor, FreshBooks.com. As you guys know, FreshBooks is bookkeeping software for business owners. I have loved it and used it since 2012. And right now I'm working on a new project and it has been awesome to have my contractor who is working on it. I'm going to keep it purposely vague so it can still be a surprise for you guys in a few weeks. But there is someone who's now on an hourly basis working on the project and it was so easy. In two seconds, I could whip them up a little profile and then give them a billing hourly rate. And they have the app and the desktop use of FreshBooks in my account so that they can track all their hours to the second by just clicking buttons. So once they're using their time, they're on the clock. And when they're not, they're off the clock. And then they can just submit their payments that I need to make for them very easily and effectively straight through FreshBooks. So super easy. I can also see what their time that they've tracked so far is and so much more. So if you're interested in stuff like that or things like tracking your expenses effortlessly or invoicing through PayPal in a cinch, check out FreshBooks. You can get a free 30-day trial by going to freshbooks.com backslash lively. 
And now for a sneak peek. Next week, I'm headed to New York after my little weekend here in Louisiana. And then I'm going. Some of you guys might know this, but I kind of want to leave it a secret because next Thursday's episode is going to reveal exactly why I'm going to where I'm going next. But I will say I've never been there before, a totally new continent to explore, and I cannot wait to take you with me. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. <laughs>